You can take your seats. Kids, Miss Gage is over there ready to take out the children's worship so you can head out. Um, welcome to the uh, fourth Sunday in Advent. Uh, as Joe's already said, Christmas will be here in a couple of days. Uh, particularly welcome to you today. Uh, I know many of you uh, don't normally come here on Sundays. Uh, we're glad you're here. And I know many of you are here because your family asked you to come here. And you're actually thinking about what's next. And I don't mean the sermon. Uh, it's a crazy time of year. Uh, you know, we have names for these things, right? So the, the Friday after Thanksgiving is Black Friday, and then the Monday after that now is called Cyber Monday. And I understand that yesterday was called Panic Saturday. <laughs> and uh, as given witness by the fact I tried to drive down West Broad Street yesterday, and that was a slow-moving riot. Uh, down the road, uh, not sure what Jesus would have thought about what was going on out there, but uh, what a mess. So today we're going to look at a great passage, a familiar passage uh, that includes Mary's Magnificat, uh, where uh, she sings about God's goodness and grace to her. Uh, we're also going to talk about Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, and uh, just exactly what it is that God is doing in and uh, with uh, these women today. So let me read to you. From Luke chapter 1, verses 39 through 55, the text is in the bulletin and also up on the screens behind me. Luke 1, 39 through 55, this is the word of God. We should hear it and respond to it as such this morning. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy 
as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. So this, this is a great text for us today, and it's an important one because it addresses uh, what really is going on in most of, the, of us today in, in, our, uh, in our hearts. Uh, and that is those things that we are constantly giving ourselves over to and seeking after. Because here's the thing, right? Um, we are familiar with, uh, with Mary, obviously. Uh, uh, we, we know all about her. She's famous to us, right? We, uh, uh, and if you think about it a little bit, you know who John the Baptist is and you know who, you know, his, his dad, Zechariah, we talked about him a couple of weeks ago. We talk about them every year, Elizabeth at Christmas, right? We, these are, these are people that we are familiar with and that sort of thing. So, so we know these stories and, and as I've said a million times before, anything that we're familiar with is actually dangerous because it loses its impact on us. Because here's the thing, what you have to see about what's going on here, the whole context of what God, God is doing is he is saying something to us that is countercultural, counterintuitive to the way in which we think about the world. And indeed, the way we think that God interacts with the people in the world. Because here it is. Okay, Brian, you can put my notes up there. The, the fact is, is that Christmas is for nobodies. Now, we know... Uh, 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 Elizabeth and Mary, because here they are in the Bible, right? We, we know all about that. But one of the things that you have to see is that, that what's happening here in Luke 1, uh, is, is something really crazy. Because at the end of Malachi, the end of the Old Testament, right? Uh, God makes all kinds of promises about what he's gonna do next. And then God is silent and is seemingly largely absent for 400 years. 400 years. 400 years. Now, God hasn't, as far as the people are concerned, as far as they, they look, any big revelation, any big thing that he's doing, it's been 400 years. Now, here's a, we, we need to unpack this a little bit. We need to think about this. Because remember our father Abraham, right? Um, uh, we think of him and we think, well, if God showed up and talked to me like he did to Abraham, it'd be really easy for me to believe. But one of the things that we forget about Abraham is, is that God would show up and talk to him and then he'd disappear for 25 years. Now, for me, that would be maddening. Like, did I remember that? Did I dream that? Did that really happen? Did he show up or what? Well, here it is, 400 years. A lot's changed. If, if your whole, uh, the way you think about yourself, the way you think about your people is identified by this God who has this rich history of revealing himself to prophets and through prophets and, and revealing himself in mighty acts and, and doing all these things. And now for 400 years, he's not done anything. He's been silent and seemingly inactive. You would, it would be, it would be really challenging, right? So, so for 400 years, nothing has happened. But now all of a sudden we read at the beginning of Luke, Luke chapter one, there's this explosion of God doing things. Angels are showing up and talking to people and babies are getting conceived and all kinds of stuff is happening. Suddenly, after 400 years of silence, God's at work. He's on the move. But who's he on the move with? Right? We, when we read, uh, when we read in, uh, Luke, uh, he writes this, this gospel, really, it's a, it's kind of a letter to a guy named Theophilus, and he says, I'm gonna record for you all the things that, 
that, that Jesus said and did. And he begins his story by saying, in the days when Herod was king in Judea. And so what we would expect is that here's, you know, God is moving in on the scene. He is about to change things. That the story now would be about how God interacts with Herod. Right? But instead, God is showing up and dealing with an obscure priest named Zechariah and his barren old wife and a teenage girl in the hill country of Palestine. Obscure nobodies. 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 This is not the way we expect God to work, right? God, God moves in big, dynamic ways. And certainly he, he moves through kings and princes and, and he moves nations around and he does all that. But here at the beginning of the New Testament, he is doing something new and completely different. And he is doing it in the most obscure, hidden way with the most obscure, hidden people. Next slide. So we have this old woman, Elizabeth, who miraculously conceives John the Baptist and a virginal young woman who conceives our Savior by the Holy Spirit, right? So it's no wonder that when we read Mary's song after she's greeted by Elizabeth, the theme, one of the dominant themes in her song, the Magnificat, you know, it's been placed to music and, and people have sung for years and years and years, is the theme of God kind of God's economy kind of overturning the way in which we think about things, right? That the way we think is, is that God is going to deal with the rich and the powerful and, and, and that, you know, the obscure, the lowly, the invisible are going to be largely, uh, left out. Well, here's what's so great about this passage. And you miss this if you're not, if you're not really thinking about what's going on. We're told that Mary walks into the room and Elizabeth feels the baby jump for joy within her. Now, she's an old woman, so she's she's really going to feel it, right? No, no offense. Uh, so she's really going to going to feel this, right? She's and it's it's something really profound. Well, you don't see that baby jump. The witness to God there, the witness to who Jesus is, uh, is completely invisible. Nobody sees it. Nobody's aware of it, right? Except Elizabeth. And, and it is a, it's a pretty profound thing for, for us to think about. If you get a chance this afternoon, the three of you that aren't going to be busy, um, look on, look on Google images and, uh, Google the visitation. That's what this is called. And see how artists throughout history have tried to, uh, display this because, you know, there's these, you know, there's sweet pictures of these women. Sometimes one looks a little more pregnant than the other one, greeting each other and that kind of stuff. But nobody, except some really weird modern stuff, <laughs> there's one picture of a fully adult John the Baptist inside of Elizabeth going like this, <laughs> and a fully grown Jesus sitting on a chair and Mary going like this. Uh, I thought about showing that to you, but I'm just like... I know what they're trying to do there, but you know, it's just, just can't go there. But anyway, uh, it's just a very, it's, it's just hard for us to see because it's hidden. It's obscure. It's not, it's not what we, the way we would tend to, to think about this, right? And so it's no wonder that the Magnificat is all about God overturning the way we think about our lives and about the world. 
And what I think makes this passage so sweet is not that babies are being born and not that infertility is being overcome, although those certainly are sweet things. What is so sweet to me is the humility and the lowliness that these two women, so pivotal. In fact, they, they are the key players in the most important thing that will ever happen. Let me say that again. They are the key players in the most important thing that will ever happen. They are the key players that God uses to bring his son into the world. And how they talk to each other and how they interact with each other in such lowliness and, and humility is such a rich thing. Look at what they say, right? So um, Elizabeth says, why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? And look at what Mary says. The Lord has regarded the low estate of his handmaiden. His handmaiden. She's willing to be called the Lord's handmaiden. You know, this says a lot to us, doesn't it? Because uh, we live in the 70s and 80s. There was a philosopher, theologian named Francis Schaeffer. Uh, those of us who grew up at a certain time, very familiar with him. Uh, most of you probably have never heard of him before. He was a, he walked around in lederhosen and shorts and had, you know, a little hair here. And he lived on a mountainside in Switzerland. And he ran a teaching ministry there. Had, Pretty powerful influence on me. He said that the, the sins of the age in America in, seven, in the 70s and 80s was personal peace and affluence. Pretty attractive things, really. Personal peace and affluence. I, I don't think that's the case anymore. I don't think personal peace and affluence are, are the sins of America. I think the, 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 the driving sin in America today and in our church, frankly, is what I would call expressive individualism. And that is, I am an individual and I'm all that matters and what I want and what I desire and what I pursue is all that matters. And the rest of you are here to help me achieve my goals. After all, I'm to follow my heart and any God or family or community that weighs in and says, well, perhaps you should think about this is not worth me thinking about or listening to. But here we have these women whose lives are being completely disrupted, are, are talking to one another and talking to this God in such humility and lowliness and willingness to, to be used and serve, to serve the purpose of their God in any way that he sees fit, right? Now, Mary goes on to say that, you know, is, is really counterintuitive to us because as she's talking about God, she says, holy is his name. Right now, if somebody were to come up to you and say, hey, Steve, you seem really holy to me, we would be disturbed by that. Right. Like, what am I doing that makes you think that? Right. What what is it? I need I need to change my behavior because holy sounds to us like super religious or 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 super, you know, the kind of people you don't ever want to be with. You don't take holy people to ball games, do you? Right. (laughs) Right. Who wants to sit next to a holy guy at a football game? Right? Isn't that the kind of the way we think about that, right? I think it that way anyhow. I mean, when you look at the art on these, these stories, you know how you know who the holy people are in it? They got halos, just like y'all. You know? 
That's how you can tell who Mary is. She lit up, man. Got the big thing up here shining, just like John McGurn. So, you know, look at that. You can tell John's holy. He's got a halo, right? So holy is his name, right? So the fact is, the fact is that what, what she goes on to say there is how this holiness, which is God's perfections of his perfections, how does that manifest itself in the way in which he behaves towards us? Next slide. What he, what, what he says is, is this, that God loves to undertake for the underdog who calls on his mercy. That's the thing. That's how his holiness is, is manifest here. So Mary mentions this three times in verse 50. He has mercy on those who fear him. Verse 52, he has exalted those of low degree. He has filled the hungry with good things. That's one side of God's holiness. The other side is that God opposes and abases the haughty or the proud. Mary mentions this three times also. Verse 51, he scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He's put down the mighty from their thrones. The rich he has sent away empty. Next slide. So th- this is the thing. It's clear from Mary's words and from the whole Bible that God is not partial to the rich. The powerful are the proud, right? How could God be partial to the things which in our world are more often than not substitutes for God? I mean, isn't it crazy that what God says is, these are things that I don't like, and these are the things that I spend all my time grasping after. Power, reputation, money, significance, importance in the eyes of people. Those are the things that, that, that grab our attention, are they not? Those are, those are the things that I grasp after. So it makes sense that God would never hold up before us those things that we would grasp after that would replace him. Rather, God is pouring himself out on the behalf of those who have nothing. Now, you know, I get into this argument with people in our congregation all the time because I tell people, I tell most, I, I, I can think that most of you, I've said this to at some time or another, you're rich. And people are like, well, you know, that's like saying somebody's a bad person. You're rich. Well, I'm here to tell you, the vast majority of you, based on the history of the world and the economic uh, situation in the world today, you're in at least the top 5%. Worldwide, across the board, and in the history of the world, you're some of the richest people who've ever lived on the planet. Yeah, you know, you're looking at me like you don't live at my house. You're rich. You're fabulously wealthy. And so this should make you a little uncomfortable. It should be like, oh, this is a little troubling. If God's for the poor and I'm not that poor, then how am I I supposed to think about this? How How am I supposed to unpack this? And honestly, I don't want to be poor. I don't want to be needy. I don't want my kids to be poor. I don't want my kids to be needy. I don't want my friends to be needy. I I want to be self-sufficient, but I want to be self-sufficient in a low-key enough way that I can appear humble and poor to others. (laughs) Now, if you think you're not bent in some ways, just think about that for a little bit, right? Don't want to, don't want to boast. I want to be really careful about this, right? So, so here's, here's, 
here's the thing. God, God says to us, listen, you know, the, the truth of the matter is because you're that way, that is an evidence to all of us who have eyes to see of our spiritual poverty. And every single one of us are in the bottom 100% on the spiritual poverty scale. You are a wreck. And that's what qualifies you to receive the grace of God. Praise God, right? So all these things that I'm grasping after all the time are the kinds of things that actually prevent me from appreciating and laying hold of the work of God in my life. We, we, would, we would rather spend our time and energy kind of faking humility while all the while living as if we're quite proud. So what we see here is that both in, demonstra- in both the demonstration of who God's dealing with and what they're saying, and in words, it's clear that recognizing our true estate, that we are needy, broken. As you heard these beautiful young women say up here, that they are sinners in the sight of God, justly deserving his displeasure, except by his sovereign mercy. That we are broken pots, but in us is a treasure that Jesus Christ is for us, that he has placed in us by virtue of his life and his death. We, but we will find any way, right, to boast. My wife teaches first grade, and on Wednesday was their last day of school. So, you know, there are three first grades at the school where she teaches, and so she decided that in her class they're going to have a birthday party for Jesus. And what do you do at birthday parties? You wear party hats and you eat cake. Right. The other classes didn't do that. Which, you know, that's fine. Uh, Whose class would you want to be in? (laughs) Right. Let's eat some cake. Let's go to a party. So, you know, how people boast is when you see six year olds, two six year olds from two different first grade classes standing in the car line and one six year old has a party hat on and cake. (laughs) And the other one doesn't. And the one who doesn't looks at the one with the cake face and says, you are boasting. Just by virtue of you standing here with this cake on your face, stop boasting. Just because she's got the coolest teacher in the world? Right? What are, you, what are you supposed to say about that? They have cake on the last day of school. And I'm sure it was gluten-free. So, so here's, here's the deal, right? This, this, is, this, is, this is the way it works for us, right? When, when what God is doing here is he is demonstrating his grace and mercy to the most obscure. And that the dynamic thing that he is about to do is for people that we would totally miss if they were to walk by us. We are simply a treasure in clay pots. Next slide. But there's something else that I want you to see in this text, too, that is so, so rich. So in the verses preceding this, in verse 36 and 37, the angel Gabriel says to Mary to encourage her that her impossible pregnancy really can come true. He says, and behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. That's why Mary arose and went with haste 
So she's looking for confirmation. That's why she wants to go see Elizabeth, because if Elizabeth's in her six months, she'll be able to tell, right? And she wants to go and see her. And the words from Gabriel come to us. I want you to see, Mary, that though you've never known a man, what's impossible with men is not impossible with God. Nothing is impossible with God. Next slide. So in the face of infertility and barrenness, God does the impossible. He gives life. Now, I know for a fact that that crushes some of you. To hear the words that God does the impossible and he brings life to the infertile because you're infertile and he hasn't done that for you. Or maybe it's not infertility. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a restoration of your relationships. Maybe it's a job. Maybe it's just something that you need, that you have an unfulfilled desire. And it's God who says that what, is, that he, he, what God does the impossible all the time, nothing is impossible with him, is so hard for us, right? But I want to tell you something that the words of God here, that nothing is impossible with him, we need to think about that. Because certainly, infertility made it seem impossible that Elizabeth could ever have a child or that Mary could ever have a child. But also think of this. When you live day in and day out with a uh, unfulfilled desire that defines you, that marks you, that you are reminded of every single day, it seems impossible in the midst of that, that God could sustain you. All these years, God's been doing the impossible work of sustaining barren, old, broken down, and fertile Elizabeth. And he's doing that same impossible task in the hearts and lives of his people today. That's how rich and powerful the gospel is. And lastly, to get more to the point of obscurity, the driving action of this text, as I've already mentioned, is actually hidden from our eyes. We can't see it. We only know that John the Baptist left and Elizabeth said what she said and then Mary said what she said because the Holy Spirit's at work in this baby, in this baby. And that's the word that's used here. I use fetus in my letter uh, at the beginning of the bulletin, but that's not the word in the Greek there. It's the baby inside her. That's what he is, a baby. Uh, we only know this because Elizabeth tells us that her baby leapt for joy. Next slide. So Gabriel had already told Zechariah, this baby's father, that he would be filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb. And I'm, I'm here to tell you, only people are filled with the Holy Spirit, even people in utero. And so not only is God bearing witness to his saving purpose through obscurity, he's also doing it through weakness because the weakest people on the planet are the unborn. And next to them, in most of the world's cultures today, the weakest and most insecure people on the planet are pregnant women. And yet here God is, demonstrating his power and his grace and his mercy, moving in a powerful and profound way in and through babies, unborn babies, bearing witness through their witness, and through the witness of these vulnerable, 
insecure women who here they are, all they have to rely on in their pregnancies, in their lives, and what God is doing is in God himself. Listen, listen. This is the God that we come to worship today. This is the one who's born in the stable, who dies on a cross, who rises from the dead, who will come again in glory. He identifies with the invisible and the obscure. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus. They did as he had directed them and prepared the Passover. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. Let's use this prayer of confession from Isaiah chapter 60 uh, as we uh, confess our sins together. Arise, shine, for your light has come. And the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Believer, hear the good news. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. On the night in which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread and he broke it, just as I do now, ministering in his name, and he gave it to his followers. We know uh, that the Lord... Uh, is near to the brokenhearted. He is near to the invisible, the poor, the sad, the broken. And it is great hope for us today to recognize that left to our own devices, left on our own, uh, we would find a way, find a way to heal our hearts Find a way to find our own significance. Find a way to show that we matter. And all of those ways would end in death. 
but the way that the Lord has demonstrated to us through his life, death, and resurrection. What he has done for us uh, gives me my identity, gives me my significance, no matter how obscure I may be. If you come and you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you're saying today that Jesus sees you. You're saying today that Jesus loves you. You're saying today that this is what makes you, this is what defines you, not your grasping after whatever significance you can wring out of your existence. That's great news. If you've come to that place in your spiritual life where you have no other hope except uh, in what Jesus Christ has done for you, you proclaim that to a body of believers somewhere, he stands here today welcoming you with his arms wide open, needy, obscure people like us to welcome us, to nourish us, to encourage us, to remind us of the profound nature of his love manifest in his sacrifice for us. And so today, as further evidence of the work of God, uh, as the elders come down front uh, to assist me today, uh, we'll be led in communion this morning uh, by uh, Clara Campbell, Lizzie Marin, and Ruby Childress. So the, the Childresses and the Campbells uh, will come down front as these girls take communion for the first time to lead us, and then the rest of you are invited uh, to follow after them.